All right, good morning, everybody. If we all gather in, it looks like we have a full house this morning. Every chair is filled at the Digital Cathedral from around the world. Uh, sometimes people ask me, who all is there watching it? Well, I've got a, a, a live audience of a, a manifested human of one person, the cameraman. But every chair is filled because you gather in here and we gather together from all over the world Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral. It is a digital church, right? <clears throat> so we're not limited to four walls. The message isn't contained within uh, a brick and mortar building. It goes out all over the world and that's what makes this thing beautiful. So when I stand here and I look out over all of the chairs, I see you here with me. I see the cloud of witnesses. A lot of witnesses are probably filled up on the platform this morning cheering me on as we go through Galatians together. So I look out this morning, I see every chair filled with people from the Digital Cathedral. We're in the book of Galatians, and I'm telling you what, I'm having a good time with this. I'm really enjoying it. Several months ago when I felt to do this this year to go through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, my only hesitation was I would not be able to, to teach the topics that I felt I needed to teach. But I think in, in going through these books, we're going to hit a lot of the things that I probably would have done topically, but we're doing it in an uh, expository fashion by going through the verses. All right, last Sunday morning, we did the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and I want to read that just a little bit to set up context and to get you prepared to go on from verses 11 down through the end of the chapter. So let me start with Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Where Paul says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with us. And I went up because of the revelation that I had been given by Jesus to communicate to those guys at home church in Jerusalem the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. He said, privately, I went into those that were of reputation by lest any means I had run this race in vain or I wasn't endorsed by headquarters in Jerusalem. In verse 3, he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And he said, he, I, I didn't catch this last week, but the reason he wasn't circumcised is because verse 4 says, there, This occurred because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And if they would have had their way, they would have circumcised Titus. But he says in verse 5, he said, we didn't yield ourselves submission to that, that ring of baloney, not even for an hour. He said, because we wanted to keep the truth, the simplicity, the purity of the gospel and bring it to you. Verse 6, but when those who seemed to be something, these guys that came in that felt they were bigwigs and religious experts, they seem to be something, whoever they were, whatever they were, doesn't make any difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism to any man. But those who seem to be something added nothing to me. In other words, they came in and said, okay, look, let's, you guys need to get straightened out. You, you greasy gracers, you need to get straightened out. And here's, here's what you need to get back in line with. He said, they didn't add anything to me. We didn't listen to it at all. He said, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was given to Peter, 
that Jesus worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship. He worked also effectively in me for the apostleship to the Gentiles. Then they gave us the right hand of fellowship. They endorsed us. They stamped us approved. And they asked that only we remember the poor, which we always were going to do. So in those 10 verses, we have two major events that occurred. First of all, Paul had to com confront hypocrisy. Then he lays out a major case against law and for grace. Now, if you remember, Paul, let me take you just back. If you remember, Paul is writing this letter to people that had been set free by the message of grace. And these Galatians were Gentiles that had no background in any kind of religion except maybe some kind of paganistic worship. But they had no background in Judaism. They, they, were, they were not under the, the, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments or the 613 laws of Moses. They had no background. So when Paul came in and taught to them the, the message of grace and liberty and freedom, they embraced it. But immediately followed Paul in to the Galatians were those that wanted to suck them into a mixture message of Jesus plus law. So Paul heard about it, and Paul says, I'm not going to let this slide for a minute. I'm not going to let them get away with this. I'm not going to let them get you all wrapped up in bondage and spiritual restraints. Because once you get into those restraints, they're tough to get out of. Now chapter 3, he hits this thing head on. And we'll get to that in a, in a, in a week or so. But in verses 11 to 15... He cites an example that arose with the big dog himself, Peter. And Paul uses it to highlight the hypocrisy that comes when you try to live by law and still embrace grace. So he's, he's going to lay this out and he, he, lays, he lays Peter wide open. He, he totally exposes Peter. And he's showing us in verses 11 and 15 that law is the strength of sin. And many times, here's what I've experienced. You check this out, see if it's not true. Often those that are the most uh, hard on sin are those that have a hold on law and talk law the loudest. In other words, those that are, are always trying to tell you this is right, this is wrong, do this, don't that, do that, are the very ones that are fighting the battle of what they're trying to place back on you. The, the more law you have, the, the bigger the problem, the stronger sin seems to pull. And that's exactly what James said. James chapter 1 and verse 14 says that every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Well, what is James trying to get across there? James is trying to get across that when there's a law that is working in your life, it, it entices you. Let, let, me, let me make it real plain. Maybe at the start of the year, you made a New Year's resolution. You said, I'm not going to eat any dessert for the entire month. I got I to get my body purified. I'm not going to have any sugar for the, for the entire month. No pie, no cake, no cookies, no candy, no, no, no soda pop, nothing. Now you just set up a law. And you said, I'm not going to eat any pie for the whole month. I will guarantee you that before the first week is over, you had sugar. 
Because all of a sudden now, the pull to sugar, which you set up as a law that you would not do, becomes insurmountable. It's like fasting. You fast, you say, I'm going to fast for, for 14 days or seven days or three days. Everything, every you drive by on has a pizza. Advertising Luby's Cafeteria. And what happens is that pulls you. So you begin to give a little bit. You say, well, you know, maybe I can have liquids. I'll, I just have soup, juices. So then once you have, you say, well, liquids are good. So now you put stuff in a blender and blend it up. So now, now you put your filet mignon, you put your baked potato and salad into a blender and blend it up and drink it. And you think, okay, I'm still keeping my fast. You see what I'm saying? Whatever you have set up as a law in your life that you're not going to do, that becomes the very thing that you do. Paul taught that in, in, in Romans chapter 7. In verse 5 he says, but when, but when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Paul's saying there that the, the sinful passions that were flamed in your life came because of the law. This is one of the beauties of grace. Grace takes the law out. And, and re, religionists look at people that are living grace and they're saying that's just a license to sin. But you know what I've discovered? that grace really empowers you not to sin because you're not setting yourself up for a trap in a fall. So I have found the most liberated, sin-free people are grace people. And the most sin-laden people are those that are the hardest on sin that are teaching all the do's and the don'ts, the you can's, you cannots, the yes, the no's, the thumbs up, the thumbs down. Those are the people that are having the struggles. Now, my, my deal is trying to bring people out of that mess into liberty. And for some reason, the law for people has a tremendous attraction. And it's, hard, it's so ingrained that it's hard for them to believe that if they get totally free of that, that the life they were trying to discipline themselves to but were failing at, now it all of a sudden begin to evolve through effortless change by resting in him and let him perform the change within you. You try to create the change by your behavior. The change, real change, comes from within and grace empowers that change from within to enable you to, to live that way. All right, let's, let's, let's take some of this down from verse 11. This, now remember, he's going to expose Peter. And exposing Peter in hypocrisy, he's going to show us how the law sets you up to live a double standard life. Verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, remember, remember now who Peter is. Peter is the man. He is the head of the Jerusalem church. So here's, here's Paul getting in his face. That's what he's saying here. He says, when he came down to Jerusalem, I withstood him to the face. I got in his face because he, he, messed, he was to be blamed. Now, I sense a little irritation in Paul. Like, who does Peter think he is to come down here and try to tell us we need to be circumcised, we need to keep the law, we need to mix your message, and he himself can't even keep it himself. So Peter, Paul, Paul gets in his face. It, it, it's always struck me how if anybody should have gotten a hold of grace, it should have been Peter. Because God gave Peter, first of all, a tremendous revelation of grace in Acts chapter 10. Let me read that for you. This, 
Peter should have caught it from this, and he did to an extent, but he slid back off of it. Look what happened to him in, in uh, Acts chapter 10 and verse 19. It says, as the next day as they went up uh, on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. He was a good Jew, so he's going to pray on the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry, and he wanted to eat. But while they were getting the meal ready, he fell into a trance. Verse 11, and he saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and it was let down to the earth. And it had all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him that said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. That's not good news to a Jew. Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him the second time and says, what God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up from heaven. What, what's going on there? God is giving Peter an absolute revelation that there is no man that is unclean in God's eyes. And that when God looks at us and calls us clean, righteous, justified, holy, that no one has a right to say that we aren't. He's given Peter a tremendous revelation of Jews and Gentiles all being acceptable to God. And Peter, Peter kind of plays the Jew. Look, I don't eat those things. I've been good. And God has given him a clear revelation. Now, when you have an encounter like that, it should turn your world upside down. Verse, verse 15 of Acts, of Acts chapter 10, that 15th verse of Acts chapter 10, absolutely destroyed his religion. A voice came to him again the second time and said, what God has cleansed, you must not call uncleansed. You can't call dirty. That annihilated his, his religious exclusiveness of, of his Jewishness. <laughs> And demonstrate it, I mean, you couldn't demonstrate a message of inclusion any better than that, that vision that Peter had. P God's saying, Peter, there's no more ins and outs. There's no more has and don't has, and they have it and they don't have it. So Peter, that was Peter's background. So I've always wondered, how could Peter not have caught the grace from that tremendous revelation? But he, he did to a degree, because he went down to Cornelius' house and you know, presented himself, which was a Gentile, so he really shouldn't have been doing that. But he, he did get it, but he slid back. So verse 11 says, Peter came down, Paul got in his face. Now why did he get in his face? Verse 12. Galatians 3, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Peter would eat with the Gentiles. That was against the law. You, a Jew did not eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew himself, separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Let me read verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas, remember that was Paul's traveling buddy, was carried away with the hypocrisy. Now what, what was going on there? Without any peer pressure, Peter came down a little ahead of before the other guys came down from Jerusalem to see Paul in Antioch. 
Peter got down there ahead of time. And without any peer pressure from other religious people, this is, this is what happens in life today. Without peer pressure from other religious people, Peter began to act differently than what his, quote, religion would have him act. And he's over there with the, with the Gentiles. He's eating with the Gentiles. What is Peter eating? Well, you know, he's eating with the Gentiles. He's having pork chops for dinner. Jews do not eat pork chops. Breakfast rolls around, Peter's having bacon and eggs. Nothing wrong with bacon and eggs, nothing wrong with pork chops. In Acts 10, God revealed that to him. When, when, but when the Jews showed up, all of a sudden he changed what he was doing and he went back to being religious. He went back to his Jewishness. When the others came down, he, was, he felt the pressure from the other religious people. Boy, this, this is how we live, isn't it? We feel the pressure from other religious people and so we conform to their religiosity but when they're gone we're with our friends hanging out or with people that are really free we enjoy the freedom that creates hypocrisy it's like being one way in church on Sunday and being another way Monday to Saturday but when you come into church all of a sudden you put on your robes of righteousness and you pretend to be something that you're really not I mean we've all, we've all gone through that it's, it's amazing how we require of other people what we are unwilling or unable to live out ourselves. That's religion, and that's what Peter was demonstrating. So Paul lays out the gospel that applies to Jews and Gentiles alike in verses 15 to 21. Paul got in Peter's face and said, man, you're playing the hypocrite. If you want to be like Gentiles, that's fine. Be free. That's where grace takes you. You can have the pork chops and the bacon and eggs. But if you're going to be Jewish, then don't try to put on us the Jewish traditions that you yourself are not keeping. How many preachers stand on the platform Sunday morning and put on their people laws and standards and rules that they themselves are not keeping Monday to Saturday? That's what's beautiful about this grace message. You don't have to try to be something you're not. You can be you. And while you're being you, you can know that you're fully accepted and loved and embraced by the Father in heaven. So Paul lays out in verses 15 to 21. He does a great job of contrasting the futility of the law to accomplish the plan of God. He does a wonderful job of laying out the sufficiency of what Christ accomplished for everybody. In verse 15, let me just walk down through, through verse 20 with you. Verse 15. He said, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. He's, he's saying in verse 15, look, Jews and Gentiles sin the same way. It's, it's not, the sin is not the law of do and don't. The sin is the bullseye of not knowing authentic identity. And because we don't know authentic identity, Jews and Gentiles act the same way. And that's where we've been blind. See, Jews thought, Jews thought that if they, they were special because if they kept the law, they would be accepted by God and they were the only ones that had the law. Therefore, if they kept the law, they were special to God. And Paul comes and he just, he puts a knife, he puts a dagger to the heart of that understanding. He says, Jews and Gentiles sin the same way. They miss the mark. They miss the target, authentic identity. They don't know who they are. They don't understand what God created them to be. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. All right. 
What, what did James say? We, we read it last week. A man is justified by the works of the law. Why, was, why is the conflict? Because James is talking, James chapter 1 verse 1 says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad greeting. He's writing to the 12 Jewish tribes. He's not writing to Gentiles and James. James is bringing them over from law to grace. James himself is making a transition. James himself is not living out the depth of grace that Paul took to the Gentiles. So Paul just straightens it out here. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a new King James or, or maybe some of the other translations, it says they were justified by law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the wrong word. That is the wrong preposition there. If you will look, in, the King James actually got it right. If you look at the original text, it is, we are saved by the faith of Jesus Christ. The translator put the in in there because of his personal prejudice of thinking you had to have faith in Jesus in order to be justified. To be placed in a position just as if you had never sinned. That's justification. That's not what, the, that's not what Paul said. It's the faith of Jesus that saves us. That we might be justified by faith, the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the flesh, no, but by the, by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. See, the, the Jews should have understood that more than anybody else because they knew it was impossible to keep the law. They should have known they could have never been awakened by the law. In fact, the Jews, the Pharisees could not keep the law, but they were still strapping the law onto other people. Isn't that what religion does today? The denominations teach rules and laws and regulations that the officials cannot keep, but they're still strapping it on the people. See, it's Jesus' faith it's not our faith that brings the justification. There's nothing that you can do to merit or earn the justification. It is Jesus doing. He is the author and the finisher. And if he's the author and the finisher, then he takes care of everything in between. All right, let me read verses 17 to 19. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. <clears throat> if I go back and create laws that I left behind, I'm, I'm making myself one that is missing the law because I'm not keeping what I have now reestablished that I left, that I got free of, that I went back to. <laughs> Hope that makes sense. For if I through the law died to the law, that I might live to Jesus Christ. All right. So the, there's two points he's making here. The law was totally abandoned, verse 19. And if you go back to the law, verse 18, you put yourself back under the law of sin and death. And Paul was strong on not being under the law of sin and death. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there is therefore no, not, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, who's in Christ Jesus? All of us are. Ephesians 1, 4 said he put us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Many people in condemnation are in that condemnation because they've placed it on themselves. It didn't come from God. It didn't come from the Holy Spirit. 
There's a difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation that comes from self or from others. Condemnation will always move you away from a, a sense of God's presence. Conviction by the Holy Spirit always moves you to the presence of God. So you know whether you're being convicted or condemned. I've had people say, well, you're just, you're just being convicted of your sin. You feel separated. You feel guilty. You feel terrible. You feel uh, unrighteous. No, that's not conviction. That's condemnation. It is moving you away from the things of God. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he wraps his arms around us, lets us know how loved we are, how accepted we are, how included we are, and pulls us back into the love of God, knowing that we are no, not condemned. There's no condemnation. Paul is saying, don't get under that. There's therefore no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus who walk not after the law of the walk not after the law of sin and death, but walk after the law of the spirit of life. So if you're walking after the law of sin and death, you will come under condemnation. You're coming under that mixed message. Submitting yourself back to religion that you got free of, you will feel condemned because you're not able to keep it. So the way you stay free of, of condemnation is to stay in the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus, right? All right, so Paul, Paul was never, never for that. All right, let's come down to verse 20, 21. Verse 20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Again, they make, make the wrong preposition. We live it by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul, Paul is saying, in this grace conclusion, verse 20, he said, Jesus identified with us. We were co-crucified. We were in him every step of the way from the crucifixion to the ascension. Every step of the way. We were co-crucified. You, you died your death with Christ. It's appointed unto man once to die. And you met that when you were crucified with Christ. Death has no more dominion over you. He says in verse 21, if we could attain righteousness by doing the law, then Jesus didn't need to come. We could do it on our own. We set aside what he has done if we think that we can do. Now, let me read that verse 20, 21 again, because you really need to get, you really need to let this impact you. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I'm, I'm living. What's living is the Christ that is in me. And the life that I'm living I'm living by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, I don't set that kind of grace aside, brother. If I set that kind of grace aside, I have said in effect, I can do it and Jesus died in vain. That, that's a truth that Paul took everywhere he went. He took it from different angles, but he taught it everywhere. He taught two points there. He taught the co-inclusion of man with Christ in being the sufficient one. And he taught the power of grace to set aside any law of performance for justification. And again, if you could cut it on your own, if you could become justified on your own, then Jesus didn't need to go through all he went through as you. 
So what is this grace that he's highlighting in these first two chapters? What Paul's trying to drive home to us is the demonstration of the Father's love that he has lavishly, freely, without price, poured out on all of us. And he did that, what is so phenomenal, he did that when we had absolutely nothing to bring to the table, nothing to offer that would merit it. Salvation is not a quid pro quo. That's a, that's a popular word right now, isn't it, in, in, in America? Those of you outside may not know, we come through a lot of quid pro quo talk. Salvation is not quid pro quo. God doesn't say, yes, I have something I will give you if you first do for me. You accept me, you love me, you tithe to me, you worship me, you give me all of your life, then I will give you salvation. I will give you heaven if you do this for me. It's not a quid pro quo transaction. Not any kind of transaction. The, the, the more you move into the, the level of relationship that Paul taught here, you know what it does? It elevates your frequency. It raises your vibration. And you begin to see what Paul taught on every page of the Bible. You know why? Because what Paul was writing in here is now on the same frequency as your understanding. And every page you come through in this book, you all of a sudden become blown away by how gratuitous, how, how liberate, how scandalous, how far more liberating it is than the most radical, hyper-grace believer ever realized. You begin to see verses pop out of your Bible that you never saw before. And the verses that pop out tend to show you how good God is. Let, let, let me just walk you through some verses that maybe you, I, I'll almost assure you, you never heard these taught on in church. Look at this in John chapter 12 and verse 47. I'm just going to read you four verses, but I want you to hear these yourself. And you should, if, you're, if you're taking notes, jot these four down, go back and think about it. John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus said this. He said, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, <laughs> I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Boy, I bet you that just threw a loop over most of you at the digital cathedral. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. I thought, man, he judged me for sure if I heard his word and I didn't do it. Why? Because of this, this grace that is scandalous. It is unreasonable. It is over the top. It is unexplainable. I don't judge him because I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. So the only question you have is, did he do it? Was he successful? How about this verse? 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul told, Paul told Timothy something that blows no... I never heard this one taught in church. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Man, I thought that if my faith drained away that all of it... He, didn't, he was not, no longer obligated to me. 
That my faith was the thing that spurred us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. John chapter 5. Probably never heard this one in church. John chapter 5 and verse 22. For the Father judges no one. Man, I, I grew up thinking that I was going to stand before the Father one day and he was going to open this big book. And he was going to read every deed. He may even put it on video up on a big screen my entire life and show everything that I did. And I would have to stand there and have no rebuttal. Jesus said, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So what does the Son do with that? John chapter 8. Let's see what he's, Jesus kept right on teaching. Gets over to chapter 8 and verse 15. And he said, you judge according to the flesh. Jesus said, I judge no one. So where does our judgment come from? It comes from ourselves. It comes from other people. It comes from our culture. It comes from what we thought, what, we've, what we were taught. The father said, I don't judge anybody. I let the son do the judgment. Then the son turns around and says, you guys judge according to the flesh by what you see, by actions. I don't judge. I don't judge what you do. I judge who you be. And the word that judges you from Jesus is that you be righteous. You be justified. You be holy. You be his son, right? You be his brother. Join heir. That's who he, that's who he judges you to be. This, the the, the one-way love that this, this has come just like you are, man. Just come on. Come on like you are. And when you come like you are, I want you, I want you to give it up. Lay it down. I want you to just rest back in me. And as you rest in me, I'm going to begin to do some work, tinker on the inside of you. And the tinkering and the adjusting that I'm going to do internally in your life is going to create change. And there'll be times you don't even know the change is going on. You're going to look in the mirror one day and go, you know what, I'm not the same guy I used to be. You're going to come into a situation that used to make you blow your top. You're going to, you're going to encounter somebody that used to be you to give them a piece of your mind. And all of a sudden, you just give them a big smile and a big hug. And it's not because you're trying to do it. It's just become who you are. And you walk away from that and you go, that's not how I used to act. That's not how I used to be. You know why? Because he's doing the change within you. That's how good he is. This is what one way love says. Just come to me like you are. He lives in you because, because of unconditional do you understand the depth of that word unconditional? That means there's no stipulations. There's no add-ons. There's no asterisks to the love he has for you. Here's who lives in you. Here's who Paul said in Colossians, and I can't wait to get over to the book of Colossians. I love Colossians. Actually, these four books, I love them. That's why I guess the Lord said, use those four books to show them Paul's message. <clears throat> Here's who lives in you. This, this is the depth of this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says that in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Now just think of that. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in one body. It's encompassed it all. Now this is, how, this is how big he thinks of you. Then in verse 10 he says, and you are complete in him 
the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. So if you're complete in the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells, guess what dwells in you? Now what he's going to do is reach down inside of you, begin to do some surgery, and pull that out. Now if you try to help him, you're going to mess it up. Can you imagine going in for surgery and you're laying on the, on the table and you're taking a knife and cutting yourself open and you're starting to help a surgeon do surgery? That's, that's what we do. We say, well, you know, I'm not sure God can create the change in me, so I better help him. I better not do this. I better stop going there, do this. And we're going to help him. And our behavior modification messes up the entire operation. And God said, I don't need your help. I need you to rest. I need you to shut it down. I need you just to hang with me. You're out in the kitchen with Martha making sandwiches I never asked for. Well, Mar Mary's in here enjoying the better part. We're, we're dialoguing, man. We're, we're having a great time. Put the sandwich board back in the dishwasher and come in here. You're not going to aid me. I don't need the sandwiches. In, ver in Colossians chapter 2, he, he goes on. He goes even deeper with it. Verse 13. He said, And you being dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's the state you were in. You thought. That's what your mind told you. We were alienated and separated in our minds by wicked works. That's how we were. Now watch what he did. And you being dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. What did you, what did you bring to the table there? Nothing. The only thing you brought to the table was your deadness and your trespasses and sins. You brought a messed up mind. And he in a sovereign act of himself, but because of this gratuitous, over-the-top grace, he made you alive in himself. And he said, I want you to understand it because I have forgiven you all of your trespasses. They're, they're not part of you. And, he, and he's renewing our mind to that, Right? That, that's what we had done. We had zero. It was, is, always will be throughout all of eternity. It will be about him. Now what religion tries to do, what religion tries to bring us back into is the same thing that the Judaizers tried to bring the Galatians back into. They try to pull us into somehow paying for what he said he did in Colossians 2.13 and a gazillion other places in Paul's teaching. What he did by himself, sovereignly, without our help, without our effort, religion tries to pull us, the Judaizers tried to pull the Galatians back into paying for it with obedience. Paying for it with discipline. Paying for it with fasting. Paying for it with by keeping laws. After all he, I mean, after all he's done for you, can't you do something for him? After all he's done for you, can't you hold up your end of the bargain? Have you ever heard teaching like that? Unconditional love, mercy, with an exhaustible account, grace that is direct deposited, a salvation that he's already picked up the tab on. Listen, if, he's, if he has picked up the tab on your salvation and forgiven you all of your trespasses, why are you still asking him to forgive you? And I, I, it does clear your conscience. That's fine. But it has nothing to do with his forgiveness. I mean, it, it would be like me paying the mortgage off on your house. 
than you going to the bank and say, I want to make a house payment. The guy says, Keith Lee came over and paid your mortgage off. Well, I, I know that, but let me make a house payment. Banker, look at you like, what's wrong with you, man? Are you crazy? You're trying to pay for something that has already been paid for. And that's the position we put ourselves in today. We're trying to pay for something you already paid for. And it, I mean, it only seems reasonable. I mean, this, this is so good. Certainly, it makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. We, we love it. We love it. But religion taught us, what's the catch? Religion, whether it's the Judaizers of Paul's day or the Baptists of today, the Calvinists, the Armenians of today, they play in our feelings of what can I do to show my appreciation? Must be something I can demonstrate. So Paul comes in and through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, but it's highlighted so well in his second chapter, he moved them out of, out of, this, of this do something for Jesus and he awakened them to what Jesus has done for you. He accepted you. Chose you, man. He loved you first. Didn't Jesus say, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. The disciples didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. John got it. John said, we don't love him necessarily. We love him because he first loved us. That's... Everything that we do is in a response to what he's already done. It's in a response to his initiative. Now, I came from a background where we make the initiative and then he responds to us. I pray the magic prayer. I make the confession. I demonstrate the faith. And then he responds to that. I'm going to tell you something. If you, I don't want you to ever forget this. Believing, faith, and receiving don't make anything happen. They make nothing happen. Believing faith and receiving only awaken you to what has already taken place. You believe because he has first shown you. Then you believe. See, your believing doesn't make it so. Your confession doesn't make it so. Confession, homologio, means to agree with. You agree with what he's already demonstrated and brought to you. See, we always, we always move in an effortless response to his revelation, to his unwrapping of who he is. The more he unwraps who he is, the more we see him disclosed to us, the more we believe. Don't make it, don't make it eat him small. To each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. It's a big gift, man. It's bigger than I even realized today. This is January 2020. I will, I will guarantee you that January 2021, my Jesus is going to be bigger than he is today. I'm going to manifest and demonstrate more than I am today. Because I believe as I see. In, in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to start widening this down, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to read verses 3, uh, three and 4 to you out of that fourth chapter. <clears throat> Paul said, if our gospel is veiled, if this, if this message that I'm teaching liberty, Paul says, is veiled, it's veiled to those that are perishing. Now that doesn't mean they're headed to hell. It means that they, are, they have a disconnect from the source of life. When you have a disconnect from the source of life, you're perishing. When you're connected to the source of life, there is no perishing. 
So Paul said, if, if, if my gospel is hid, this gospel of freedom, liberty, this crazy over-the-top grace that I'm giving to you, he said, if you, don't, if you don't get it, it's because you're not connected to the, to the life. In verse 4 he says, and here's what has disconnected us. The, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who do not believe, who don't, haven't responded. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine into them. And when that light shines in, then all of a sudden the veil is lifted and you see. So what, what is the God of this age that has is, that is blinded our minds? It's everything that tries to occupy our thinking and our time, every bond, every connection that we've made. That saps our energy and our strength, that diverts us away from where we really would like to go. It's whatever stops us from getting a clear mental image of what we would really want to do in life. Letting that image crystallize and then begin to say out our mouth what that, what that picture is and then begin to act in accordance with what we say and what we have seen. And all our time watching Fox News and we get no picture. MSNBC, CNN, Fox, I don't care whatever, whatever your flavor is. You get tuned into that, you're, you're, you're going to get hoodwinked on, into what God is doing and saying to you because you're not spending the time. You're not hearing it. It's just veiled. It's hidden. You can pull the veil up at any time. So that, that's the story, the first two chapters that we've looked at here in Galatians. Religion attempts to block. It attempts to block the light and the freedom of the gospel with laws and rules. That's what Paul's getting at with these Galatians. Religion does that because it doesn't want to lose control. It wants to change the lens and the paradigm through which Paul looked through. It, it, doesn't, want, it doesn't want to lose you. Once the light shines in, all of a sudden when the light shines in, you can fish for yourself. You're no longer dependent on the church or the denomination to give you a fish. You can get it yourself. Now I'll tell you, it's, it's absolutely true that God demands we be righteous. His diagnosis is none of us are righteous. His solution is Jesus is our righteousness as us. Two quick verses of scripture and I'm done this morning. 2 Corinthians. Let me go 1 Corinthians first. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. God demands we be righteous. His diagnosis is we're not righteous. His solution is that Jesus is our righteousness. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians 1.30. But of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Man, I could spend, I could spend another hour on that 30th verse because everything religion has tried to get you to strive to obtain Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Especially sanctification, righteousness, and redemption. Paul says that because of Jesus, he became those things for us. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that he became sin with our sin. So that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. When you, when you read the writings of Paul, Paul was passionately, desperately, 
putting out the good news that was given to him directly by revelation from Jesus, knowing that if, if their light would come on, they would change the world. The reason I stand here in the digital cathedral every Sunday morning, the reason I, I do the Wednesday night is because I know once the light comes on and our culture reaches the tipping point, the world will change. Paul's message to the Galatians was not too good to be true. It's the truest truth of the universe. That one directional, unconditional love is going to fulfill the very plan and will of God for every man that was ever born, regardless of how many eons of time it takes. Love never fails, not one time for one person. That, my friend, is the demonstration of real grace. Even when religion, and I'm done, even when religion tries to choke out the goodness of God, it does not change the truth of God's goodness. I want you to enjoy that goodness this week. I want you to enjoy that liberty this week. I want you to be yourself this week. Don't try to be somebody else. You are the greatest you that will ever be on the planet. Know that God has liberated you, made you free, and if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. See you Wednesday night, Wednesday Night Live, back next Sunday morning. We will pick it up with chapter 3, an awesome chapter. I want you to read the first nine verses of Galatians 3 this week. Meditate it, and we're going to come back and talk about those foolish, crazy Galatians. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and I pray that everything that I said today would settle into your spirit and that this word would become your flesh lived out daily before man that they might see the Christ that dwells in you. I love all of you. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers, your help, and your support. See you Wednesday night. We thank you for being with us today on the Digital Cathedral. We trust that today's teaching helped you in your journey to the abundant life Jesus has freely given to all. If you would like to help support us in spreading the gospel of grace, you can do so by going to donkeithley.com to make your donation. We thank you for your prayers and continued monthly support and look forward to seeing you again next week at the Digital Cathedral.